Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast. We started the podcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. There is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we're all very busy and we do not have the time. We created the Sendcast to help make schools more inclusive, and the Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, we have a different guest that has come along to talk about an area they are passionate about. And this week, my guest is Joanna Grace. Joanna is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, and Joanna has come along to talk about multi-sensory rooms and to dispel some of the myths. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared, and over the last 25 years, B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we've focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus, but we have seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training and CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started a couple of years ago with the virtual SEND conferences, but now includes a range of training sessions and free SEND briefings. You can find out more about our training courses and our free briefings by going to the Training for Education website, www.trainingforeducation.com. And at the end of the episode, I'll be sharing an exclusive Sendcast discount code, so keep listening. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, my guest Joanna Grace has come along to do some myth-busting around the magic of multi-sensory rooms. Joanna is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, a doctoral researcher, author, trainer, TEDx speaker, and founder of the Sensory Projects. Joanna has worked with people with learning disabilities and neurodivergent conditions aged from birth to 87 years old. Welcome to the show, Joanna. Thanks for having me. Uh, 87 is very specific, isn't it? Uh, birth to death. I was thinking that. Just currently the oldest person I know is 87. It's like those uh, Lego instructions for birth to 99. It's like, that's very yeah, uninclusive for those who are <laughs> poor, poor 100-year-olds banned from Lego. Yeah. So lots of schools have multi-sensory rooms. We've seen them all. Um, they're extremely popular. I've seen them a huge variety, some small, some big. But let's start at the beginning. Not what is a sensory room, but what is a sensory room for? That's a very big question to start with, because you're right, they are everywhere, aren't they? They they used to just exist in specialist settings. And they're actually, they're part of the DFE's guidance for what a specialist setting is, you know, needs, what it requires. Because obviously, if you're going to run a special school, you will be needing a dark room with fiber optics and a bubble tube in. Because everybody knows that people with learning disabilities need fiber optics and a bubble tube. It's just common fact, isn't it? I was agreeing with you. If you're running a specialist setting, you need a dark room. I was like, yeah, yeah you can just end there. Yeah, absolutely. You need- <laughs> oh, you're so, you're so right, actually. So they used to just be in specialist settings. And then they, you, you get them, quite a lot of mainstream schools have a sensory room now. Specialist settings commonly have more than one. So they'll have a dark room and a light room and an immersive room. I've been to schools that have got four or five. You also get them in football stadiums. The Premier League released a fund for installing sensory rooms. So like Arsenal's got a sensory room. I get tagged on Facebook in like some airports have got sensory rooms. 
I am working with a number of heritage settings that want to put in a sensory room into their historical building or into their art gallery. So sensory rooms are massively, massively popular and they are proliferating like mad. And the reason for that is they're really well sold. They're a very, very successful product. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because obviously they're ace. It's just a little worrying that it wasn't based on something else, isn't it? You know, and what your question was, is what are they for? That's brilliant, isn't it? Because if that's what we'd been thinking about, what is this for? Then the way that we use them might be different and might be more effective. So one of the places I've seen sensory, so yeah, I often go to a school, this is our sensory room. There's generally no one in it. I go, oh, that's cool. And then we move on. I don't actually see it in use or anything about it. But when I, you, if you go to the autism shows that are in London, Birmingham, Manchester, there they have, they do amazing. I love, I love them because they they turn the lights down. All their talks are through headphones, like silent disco. Yeah. So you'll be sitting there, it's absolute silence. Everyone's clapping. It's like, why is everyone clapping? Oh, the talk's finished, but you couldn't hear them. So it's really well thought out, and and the organisers do a really good job. It's spaced out. It's it's really. They also have sensory rooms that people can go to. And from again, without being in a school, it's sensory room is kind of, again, without knowing, somewhere where if something's too much, you can go to the sensory room to calm down. So that's one, what are they for, would be to, to get out and calm down. And if you're creating a space that is get out and calm down, that's a very different space you're going to create for if your space is to do with animating learning or creating engagement or getting connection from somebody who doesn't connect otherwise. So what are they for really underpins their value. And in 2019, I did a big piece of, I say big, it was big because it took me a lot of time and I, I did a lot of work. In research terms, it's not particularly big, but for me, it was big. I did a big piece, (laughs) a medium-sized piece of research looking into the use of multi-sensory rooms in the UK and and further afield. But because I'm based in the UK, most of the people who took part in that were within the UK. And I was looking into effective practice in sensory rooms, barriers to effective practice, and what the essential ingredients of a really effective sensory room are. And my research was published in the Tizard Review, so it actually counts as proper research because it went into a peer-reviewed journal. And it was published in the book, Multiple Multisensory Rooms, Mythbusting the Magic. And what I was, <laughs> the thing is, working as a sensory engagement specialist, I always get asked, you'll get somebody who comes up to you and goes, I've got a budget for updating our sensory room. What equipment do we need? Or what's, I got asked this week by somebody, what are the five things you recommend having in a sensory room? And the question is about the equipment always. And when I did that research, I was kind of thinking, because I've been in sensory rooms, you know, I've worked in special schools, I've worked in mainstream schools, I consult through education across the UK currently. So like you, I get to go in a lot of sensory rooms and I've seen sensory rooms that seem to be working really well. And I've seen like, I saw a, I saw a room that had an infinity swing in. I was like, oh. Like I would totally recommend every sensory room have an infinity swing in because this infinity swing was brilliant. But my view of what's great in a sensory room is just that, isn't it? It's my view. And yes, I've got relevant professional experience and, you know, I've got all of that, but it's still just my view and it's based on what I've seen. And so if I was going to say, 
these are the top five pieces of equipment, I'd want it to be based on more than just you know what I thought was a good idea. Even, however much I like the infinity swing, which is definitely a great idea, by the way. And so I thought that this research would find that out for me because I was asking all of these people. I interviewed loads and loads of people who use sensory rooms, and I was saying, you know, I think one of my questions was, what piece of equipment, if I took it away, would like spoil your sensory room? Which is the bit, you know, it's like the desert island disc question, isn't it? Which is the thing you couldn't live without? And I was genuinely surprised when that research didn't, it only turned up one thing that you would count as equipment. And even then it's sort of debatable whether it's equipment. And it was what you just said. So your instincts on this are really good because your first question was, what's it for? Which is absolutely what you should be thinking when you're creating a sensory space, be that a sensory room or be that just a little pop-up tent in the corner of a classroom. And then it just needs to be dark, doesn't it? Darkness was the only thing that came up as significant. Loads of people said that the thing that is powerful about the sensory room is that I can create a blackout. And quite often I would follow that question up because it was semi-structured interviews. So I had set questions that I was asking, but then I can ask other questions, you know, to find out more information. So when they'd say that, I'd say, so if I could just give you a dark space in your classroom, would that be as useful to you as the sensory room that you share? And they'd go, oh, that would be so much better because then I wouldn't have to, you know, wait my turn. Then the children could use it when they needed it. We could take so-and-so in when it's, you know, and what they wanted was just a little dark space. And actually, if people are listening and they think, yeah, I'd like a little dark space, there's loads of ways of achieving that without having a sensory room. You can get that magic blackout. The, a few years ago on Dragon's Den, there were some people who were selling, pitching, stick-up whiteboards that were pieces yes. of plastic that sort of stuck to the wall based on static. And they also make the same, but black plastic, and it statics to your windows. So you can just smear it over your windows. It gets sold as a baby sleeping product. Or I've seen teachers do brilliant things with cardboard boxes and Velcro dots. You cut a piece of cardboard that's the exact shape of your window, Velcro dot the corners, Velcro dot your window, and then you can just stick a bit of cardboard and create a blackout in your classroom. And the power of that blackout, it's, it's, it's not particularly the sensoriness of the blackout, isn't it? It's the backgrounding. You've created a completely plain visual background. The blackness of that background places no visual requests on you so that anything you see against that background is the only visual request. You're not being asked to process light from any things. And that backgrounding of sensory experience is extraordinarily powerful. And it's not just something that you do across vision. You also want, you know, a blank sound background in order to be able to hear and, and a, a blank smell background. The COVID and the open windows has been great for smell backgrounds, you know, but all of those things have a power in terms of your sensory engagement. Um, but they're not necessarily things that you have to have a sensory room for. So one of the things I often think that, again, when you hear someone doing something, you're like, so you literally, you have to walk two miles to, to go get that every day. Yeah. Well, surely you should change them. So you don't have to do that because you obviously need to do it every single day. So it's quite requirements. So let's do that there. It's going to save you. And then you do it. And they're like, my God, this has transformed it. And again, if you're saying that we have a sensory room, but basically if we could turn every single classroom into our school dark, yeah, 
then why have the sensory room? And if it and it benefits so many children, why are we kind of it's like having the old ICT trolley. Yeah, yeah. You've got one ICT trolley. We'll wheel it around and you book your slot. It's like, well, this is obviously benefiting lots of children in lots of ways. Why are we having a room? Why? Why have we not sort of gone, okay, when we build this school, can we just put some blinds here which will black out when we build it? And then you can make every classroom, every classroom pitch be black a room. and quiet. Because yeah. I suppose what you're saying with the sensory room, what is it for is, for what you've just said, is you're removing all the distractions, you're giving them literally a sensory That's one of the things that you can do Canvas, with it. a blank canvas there are other sensory rooms that are you know like the the immersive 4d projection rooms where you've got white walls and you can project in for you know and and create a different sort of immersive space but they do different things for different people and for different purposes that's why my book is called multiple multi-sensory rooms because actually the the multiplicity of sensory rooms is is much bigger than you because Initially, you think, well, there's dark sensory rooms and then there's white rooms. We used to have, in my old school, we used to have a dark room and a light room. And those were our sensory rooms. And But then there's also the projection rooms. But the philosophy that you run your room according to, and you might think, well, we don't run it to a particular philosophy, but you do. Because there's always, even if you don't know what it is, it, your practice in that room will be based on a particular point of view. There are two very different philosophies that then break down into other little philosophies because there's like these two groups, these two gangs of different philosophies. And you could be running a dark room according to one philosophy or a dark room according to another philosophy, and that would be a different type of space. And then you're running it with different people. But the level of multiple is huge. So there's a huge number of different types of sensory rooms when you look at them with regards to their equipment and practice. But the sad thing that came out of the research and, and also came out of the conversations around the research. Because when I asked people to take part, I get to meet loads of people. So I was just asking anybody I knew, anybody I bumped into who's got a multi-sensory room. Most people turned me down. So if I, if I should have tracked it because I, I didn't realize it would have been a finding. You know, I was just trying to find people to take part in my research. But I bet about 80% of the people that I asked turned me down. And the reason that they would give when they turned me down is they'd say, We've got a sensory room, but I, I don't really think we use it right. We're not, we're not getting the most out of it. I wouldn't want to, you know, I, I haven't got anything useful to say in your research because I don't know what I'm doing there. And then the people who I did ask, who presumably therefore represent the most confident, they all, I think with the exception of one person, said that the room wasn't giving them what they wanted. It wasn't. It wasn't meeting. There's this gap between expectation and experience. We expect the rooms to be magic and the experience is, is like you say, like nobody's in there or, or, or it's all broken. It's, it, you know, it doesn't work. So there's this huge gulf between expectation and experience. Fascinating. Because the thing is, I sit there and you go, yeah, so once you get to this blackness, the darkness, the quietness, you often have the bubble tubes, the fiber optic lights. Is it okay again? People with learning disabilities need bubble tubes and fibre optic lights, Dale. Don't question it. Hey, I've got a lava lamp. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that'll protect you from dementia. <laughs> <laughs> they're, just, they're just done with. They're done without thought, aren't they? What what caused the design? Was it picked out of a catalogue? Was it a design that the company just provided you with? Because if they didn't ask that question, what's it for? Who's it for? 
then it's nothing to do with your setting and those children. I'm so glad because I was literally, I thought, I want us to learn so much about how everyone uses these centuries. But basically, what you're saying is, We've got one because it's fashionable. Yes. Oh um, my goodness. So that was another um, thing that came out. I asked people what what prompted the installation or what prompted the update, and literally people said the the other school had one and we wanted one better than them. It was yeah. it was showcasing, but to, to to put an extra little bit on that, one of the people that I interviewed. So all of the interviews were done anonymously, but one of the people that I interviewed knows me. And I had done a number of these interviews. And when I first was asking that question, you know, why did you have your sensory room installed? I expected people to go, well, we had a child with particular sensory needs and we wanted to meet them. And they didn't say that. They were like, well, such and such a school had one and we wanted a better one than them. Or I, they, they would actively say, like, I got the company in and I told them I want a better spec one than them. I was, like, I was sitting there thinking, you're doing it to show off. Oh, my goodness. And I asked this guy who I actually know, and he said, oh, we wanted a really impressive space. And I think he saw my eye roll and he was like, and that is important. I was like, okay. He said, because when people come into our settings, they're very different to mainstream schools. They can appear very medicalized. You know, they come into classrooms and they see syringes and medicine and, you know, and it it can be a frightening space. And the sensory room is a really positive space to show them. People, you know, they walk into that space and they feel joy. And that's why it's important that we have an impressive sensory room. And you're like, okay, that's that's a nice, you know, if that is your reason, though, there are cheaper ways of doing it, aren't there? Then then I I went into a £1.2 million sensory room that was having no effect. It's like, it's just a decorative thing. But that, what what is the effect? Because every time I think of sensory rooms, I think of dark. I think of bubble tubes. I think yeah. of soft. And generally, what I think is going to sleep. Generally, I literally I go. I can sleep in this. Be lovely. I think relaxing. Yeah, that's one of. So you're in one particular philosophy camp. But what I can also again see it for is when you go to the cinema. You all shut up nice and you all stare at a screen. Yeah. So you're now going, everything is black and quiet and non-distracting apart from what's on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get your phone out because that's going to distract someone. So one bit, I literally I look at these dark spaces, it's really relaxing. Yeah. The other way I look at them is we're getting rid of all the other distractions apart from this one thing. Yeah. But that's generally a projection, so you're showing me something. And again, the final thing where I've, I went to a school a number of years ago and I walked past the hall and this was around bonfire night and I looked in the hall and it was a hall in the middle of the school. So there were no windows or there might have been windows, but yeah. they were blocked off. And it was dark in there. And they basically had these children in, in wheelchairs. So we're talking really complex children. And they had an orange light in the middle and they were waving sort of sheets to make it look like a Wonderful. fire and feel like a fire. Yeah. And I think they, they had some things like maybe like hair dryer so you can feel heat. Yeah. And they were trying to sort of going, although you're not maybe seeing it, you're trying to give you the sensation of yeah. something. Yeah. So they're my kind of three different ways I've seen them. I, I got to visit so many. And quite often when I'm delivering training for people, they're like, oh, do you want to see our sensory room? Because they don't go, oh, do you want to see class two? They go, do you want to see the sensory room? You're like, yeah, I want to see the sensory room. And in terms of their effectiveness, there is, it is in no way related to the price. You know, I've seen somebody who's painted the cupboard at the back of their classroom with black paint do way more impressive things than the 1.2 million pounds. 
I saw another one where it was it's been built to be wheelchair accessible. So they thought about that, but not hoist accessible. So the children who stood to benefit from it the most could be wheeled into it, but then couldn't be hoisted out of their wheelchairs to, you know, lie on the lovely waterbed or to get close to the interactive panels on the floor. So the level of co-design was absolutely like literally all they would have had to have done was take somebody into that space to get that design right. So you get these epic design failures. And yet these are rooms that are there in DFE guidance that, you know, you must have them as a special school. And you would assume that when something like that gets into the guidance, that it does so based on research. But then if I, and those of you who follow me on Twitter or people who bump into me on Twitter will know that I'm a big research geek. And you said in the introduction, I'm currently studying a PhD. So I'm becoming more of a research geek. But if you look into the research around sensory rooms, and I've just pulled up some quotes as we were talking. Here's one from a piece of research done in 2010. The evidence we have about the effectiveness of multisensory rooms universally lacks the scientific rigor to be required as significant. Here's another one from 2017. There is a lot of research to indicate the positive effects may be triggered by multisensory rooms, but much of this is methodologically weak, whereas stronger studies conclude no effect or even a negative effect. And then from 2017 again, with the dawning of immersive multisensory rooms with multi-walled projections and interactive surfaces, we are about to see a repeat of the research errors of the past, with substantive claims being made on the back of little to no actual evidence for their veracity. Progress will once again be driven by the available technology rather than by the abilities and needs of the users of the room. And that's what's happening in sensory rooms in general. It's being driven by the tech, by the sales of the tech, by the availability of the tech. By I, I spoke to a lovely guy who's like, I got the task of designing our sensory room because I am the guy who likes computers in our school. And he's like, I admit, I got carried away. I bought some amazing stuff. I'm the only person that can drive this room. And I'm forever being called out of lessons to help people turn it on and off again. <laughs> it's, we've got carried away with the technology. And that example that you just gave of the students around an orange light with people waving cellophane is actually much more similar to where sensory rooms started and where we get this idea of them being magic from. I think it's, it's, when I think of a sensory, and so we, I've done podcasts with Dr. Susie Nyman, who does multi-sensory teaching. Yeah, and she knows that if you use more senses, yeah. the, it's more, more engaging, yep. fires off more parts of your brain, and you learn. Yeah, so you're going, right, absolutely. so it's going to be around that. But a lot of it isn't. A lot of it, you could use it for so many things, but a lot of it in these schools is a room. You put a child in or you took a child in and we relax or we better play. But what, what, why, what is it for? And if they're going, well, they need to go in here every day. So it's like, so you're acknowledging that the environment they're in is challenging. Yeah. So that one, the get out one, you know, they get, they get stressed in a class environment and they have to go out to the sensory room to chill out. If you've got a sensory room that provides for all their sensory needs, that creates for them a space where they feel comfortable, where they feel able to relax. And if you're not relaxed, you can't learn. So if you're stressed, so that's an environment where they're maximally able to learn and to connect with the world. Why, why are you putting them in the classroom? You know, why do they have to go? And then if you're thinking, well, I can't keep a child in a dark room all day, 
then then the next question is okay how could I make my classroom more accessible to that child because what that child is currently experiencing is is sort of up you know they're getting more and more stressed they're getting more and more heightened and then they get to go to the sensory room and it and it's okay again that's like recharging their battery and then they go back into that classroom and it, they get more and more stressed and, and that landscape that emotional life through the day those ups and downs that's brutal even if they can manage it that's not something that you would want to live you're you're much better off if as you get a little bit heightened in the classroom there's a little bit of sensory provision that can bring you back down and the difference with that is it won't look as as impressive in your brochure it, it, you know it might just be an elastic band or a bit of blue tack or some being allowed to wear sunglasses in lessons and it doesn't look fancy and you can't somebody challenged me on it they said the thing is there is a it's not because I was saying that it's not that they're a waste of money because if you have the money they are very valuable but if you have a limited budget and you're making decisions on what to spend it on I would hope that you would spend it on something that has evidence behind it before you spend it on something that doesn't because we are driving towards more evidence-based practice and then there are people who would say well that doesn't apply for children with disabilities you know like, well it should they have as much right to evidence-based practice as anybody else. Yes, you probably won't find the body of research, but that doesn't mean that we should just go, oh, they don't need evidence-based practice. That means we should be contributing action researchers, teachers and things like that to, to, to give them equal hold in the world to their mainstream peers. But yeah, a little bit of you know something less spectacular would keep you level and would be a nicer type of experience so if they're being used as a get out that's one question you keep mentioning relaxing which is the that's snoozlin philosophy of sensory rooms and then the flip is the the multi-sensory rooms which is the more engaging and learning space and it's really interesting to see where those two philosophies emerge and they come about with the dawning of sensory rooms themselves so they are an invention that, like all good inventions, multiple people, like the time became ripe for them and multiple people came up with them at the same sort of time in different places. But the people who are generally acknowledged as the start point to multisensory room practice are two guys from the Netherlands called Jan and Ad. And they worked in an institution. And, you know, this is, this is a chunk of time ago. And so when you hear that word institution, it probably conjures up particular pictures in your head. And that's probably about right. You know, they're working in a period of time when people with learning disabilities are put away in the institution. Don't worry, you can have another child that, you know, they're just left there. They're working in a time where within the research of that time, these people do not qualify as human they are referred to as subhuman or severely subhuman. So they're working in that context, in that climate. And yeah, there's, there's various stories about how they came up with the idea for the room. But the one that stuck in my mind was they'd gone for a bike ride on a summer's day to the top of a, you know, a mountain or a hill or something. And they must have just been like young lads in their 20s who'd got a job in the institution, probably because, you know, they've got some muscles and people might be difficult. And they'd gone for this bike ride up the hill. And when they got to the top of the hill, they're so knackered, they just lie in the grass and look at the sky. And they're watching the clouds drift past and the little bits of dandelion fluff. And they say, well, you know, isn't this beautiful? 
we wouldn't have noticed this without being so knackered. If we weren't this relaxed, we wouldn't have spotted this beauty. And then the next thought was, isn't it a shame that we can't share this with our friends back in the institution? And that moment there, the moment where on their day off, during a time when these people are not considered human, they met beauty in the world and thought of their friends. That's the magic of multi-century yeah. rooms. And so they went back to the institution and they put a tent up in the grounds to create, because they recognized that they wouldn't be able to see the dandelion fluff against the blue of the sky. So they created this tent as a backdrop and they brought into the tent, they didn't bring in bubble tubes and fiber optics, they missed that memo. They mostly brought in bits of nature. So they brought in the dandelion fluff and they brought in smells and things like that. And then the people from the institution were invited in and the testimony that comes out of that first sensory room experience you know, I've met people who were there and they, the, you get this amazing, you know, I think of Richard Hurstwood, the stressed, relaxing, the silent are speaking. This isn't hyperbole. They're not, they're not like advertised. They genuinely saw those things happen, but those things didn't happen because of equipment. Those things happened because of the relationship between those young men and those people. And actually, when you read the early work around sensory rooms, much of it reads as very similar to intensive interaction practice. It's about the relationship. It's about the sharing. It's about how you create that connection and sharing. And Jan and Ad refer to it as snoozlen, which is a contraction of two Dutch words, meaning to doze and to be curious. It's the how relaxed they were on the hill and the curiosity of the dandelion fluff and the clouds together. And so they're trying to create this relaxed state of safety and security and sort of dozy curiosity. And because these things happened in the tent, people wanted to come and see the tent and bless them. Like you hear, you read the book, Jan and Ad are going, it's not about the tent. It's about this practice, this practice of snoozeland. You can do this when you're feeding somebody their dinner. You can do this when you're giving somebody a shower. You know, any time of day can be a, the tent is a really good place for doing this, but you can do this anywhere. And the people talking to them are like, tell us about the tent. How did you make the tent? What do I need if I want a tent? What are my top things that I need in my tent when I, because I want this magic too. And Jan and Ad are like, it's not about the tent. It's about, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. What sort of tent do we need? And then very shortly after, the term snoozeland gets trademarked. And as that is trademarked, it becomes owned um, by a particular company. And people who want to do similar things are aware that they can't because it's owned. And so they start doing multi-sensory rooms, which are not snoozeland rooms. And the purpose of a multi-sensory room is not to be dozy and relaxed, it's to be active and to be learning. And I've met schools where you're not allowed to go into the sensory room unless you have a stated learning objective for every student. They must learn. And then the funny thing is, when you look at how well people learn, they learn better in the you don't have to learn environment than in the this is what you are going to learn directive environment. So whether you have a directive or non-directive approach to your sensory room usage is another one of those splits that creates the multiples of these rooms. But the, you know, the go home message is it's absolutely nothing to do with the rooms or the tech. It's to do with the people and the relationships. So I'm going to draw a parallel here to religion. Oh, God. Stay with me. Stay with me on this one. There is a film from the 90s called Dogma. Yes, my brother-in-law loved that film. Matt Damon, Ban mm-hmm. Affleck, Chris Rock. I haven't watched enough of these things. 
it's an amazing film and it's it's how it looks at religion. Yeah. But you talked about it's not about the building or the tent, no. it's about the idea and the relationship. Yeah. It's like right, so it's not really about the church. It's about your relationship with God type thing. And in there it was um it was Chris Rock's character. He's talking about religions and he goes, None of them have got it right yet. It was it's not what it is you believe. It is that you do believe. I'm not a religious person, but the idea is it's not the fact you have a sensory room. It's the fact you have a sensory room for a reason. It's the fact. So, yeah, was it Yan and Ad? Was it? Yeah, I I would give it a go at their surnames, but I find that when I say their names together, I often spoonerize them. So they're the they're the people that wrote the book Snoozlin, Another World, which is the most gorgeous read. I mean, you should also read, read my book, but their book first. Yes. But the whole point is it, it was they had this realization they wanted to share that connection, but they had something to share. They had something which they loved or was passionate about or they enjoyed in their sharing it. So just having a sensory room, we go, what's it for? It's for sensory stuff. It's like you need a direction, you need an aim, you need something. We're trying to create this feeling. You have to have what it is you want to do. And you, you can't get a salesperson to go, well, what is you want to what is you're creating? That's got to come from you as a school. What is that? Why do you want the sensory room? What is you wanted to do? What is the aims? It's very tricky as a school because it needs to come from the people. And quite often as a school, you're looking to use it with different people for different purposes. And so one room in a fixed capacity, is, is it's like a clock telling the right time twice a day. It might work every now and then, but it's likely yeah. to not work. So you're much more likely to need a space that you can an- animate and change and adapt according to who's using it. Interesting. The other bit I just want to mention is you mentioned about evidence-based decision-making. So I recorded a podcast recently with Gary Orban from the Education Endowment Federation Foundation, who, 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 and everyone knows them for the teacher toolkit and the evidence, but there is also, they have evidence-based research for SEN and what works. Yeah. So there is evidence out there, and that will signpost you. But yeah, evidence-based decision-making don't just take a salesperson's word. Don't just get a sensory room because others. If you don't know why I need a sensory room, don't get a sensory room. Yeah, it's, it's the people who challenged me on the budget thing, they said we can get a budget for a sensory room. It's not like we can spend this money on something else. You know, like our local Rotary Club will fundraise to buy us a sensory room, but they won't fundraise to buy us training for our teaching assistants. So it's not as simple as it sounds. The, the sort of crux of it is that without research to underpin what we do in sensory rooms, over time, what we've witnessed is an evolution in technology rather than an evolution in practice. And the power of sensory rooms is what we do in them. It's the people in them. It's their understanding. And it's, it's their understanding of the philosophy sounds like a really big and clunky word, but it's understanding why you know, why you're doing this and who you're doing it for. And that that initial impact of them is situated in time. And we are in a, a different, I'll say that we're in a different time. I was looking at some of the, if you think of the, the historical lineage that goes around these things, you know, like it's, what is it, 1886 that you have the Idiots Act. And the Idiots Act 
is the first time that people with learning disabilities are distinguished from people with mental health problems. Previously, these two groups are just the people that you chuck in the asylum. And so although it sounds awful, that at that time is a step forward. But then in 1913, you get the Mental Capacity Act, which says that the feeble-minded in society should be rounded up and locked up. And up until then, you could have had somebody with a learning disability, you know, be born in your village, and they would have been, they would have been the village idiot, but they would have been a part of the community. And in 1913, it was considered progressive to lock them up because these people were going to be put into an institution that would provide for them, you know, whether they did or not. And the terms idiot, imbecile were progressive because they were a further distinction. You know, you're not all just prior to the Idiots Act, you're all just the the rubbish of society. And now you're beginning to be identified. But as a result of the Mental Capacity Act, teachers were asked to identify the imbeciles in their classrooms so that they could be taken away and locked up. And then you you're very close to the start of the wars. And the eugenics that fueled the Nazis wasn't just something that was located in Germany. All of the Western world was getting interested in this idea of eugenics at the same time, which is something that we don't like to remember now, that one population took it slightly further, but <laughs> slightly further, sorry, <laughs> you know, in that, that story that we commonly think of as being about the Jewish population and the Nazis, the start of the killing programs during that war, the T4 programs, the, the first victims of the Nazi eugenics programs were people with learning disabilities. They were the first people who were killed in the gas chambers. They were the first people rounded up. And in these institutions where these people are locked away, you have practices like people get used for medical experimentation, people have their teeth pulled out, they get sterilized, they get disciplined by being electrocuted. They're not allowed toys. They're not allowed blankets. They're not allowed privacy. You know, people get disciplined with pain. They get force fed their vomit. And as I was reading all of this stuff, because I looked back into the history of learning disabilities as I was writing the Sensory Room book, because it is so much a part of where we get Sensory Rooms from, just one of the things that I read made me think, oh, hang on a minute. And it was something about a person in an institution being force-fed their vomit when they'd, they'd refused to eat, then they'd been force-fed, and then they'd thrown up, and then they'd been force-fed their vomit. And and it was, it just glitched something in my brain, and I Googled it. And the most recent example that I could find of that was current. It was 2019. I was writing that book in 2019. And it started me on a little sort of wandering, and I went back through, you know, do we discipline people with pain? And the most recent example is 2019. The most recent example of all of the institutional practices that I could come up with was current day. And these institutions, we think of them as being so far away from our current practice. But actually, it, it's a couple of generations. And like when I started in my special school, I was told what to do by the generation ahead of me, you know, and, and I was only like a skip. I had people working in my school who had worked in the old institutions and they'd worked in the old institutions when they were a whole lot nicer than, you know, the pictures of there's a there's a set of photos in the Internet called Christmas in Purgatory, which were pictures taken when people in the States first realized what was going on in the institutions. You know, we're a, we're a split away from that. 
but actually much of our current practice is based on things that start there. And so thinking about our whys and thinking about where this practice comes from and what, what, what it says and what it means about us that we do it. Because I think the tendency is to think that the people who worked then and there were terrible. You know, they were horrible people who did horrible things. And we know that we are not horrible people doing horrible things. But they weren't. They were people who were genuinely doing what they thought was best at that time. And, and they weren't, they didn't question whether the people that they worked with were human because they knew that they weren't. And we've got that they're human, but there's, st- there's still a long way to go. And it's, the, it's, it's why it's so lovely to read Jan and Ad's work, because they're writing at that sort of time. And I've got, I've got quotes from them. And you can hear it in them. He said, we regard the mentally handicapped person as unique, someone who gives his own personal and special meaning to people and things and atmospheres. So they're not going, you're subhuman or you're less. They, they're going, you're special. Most important are the interpersonal contacts. These can never be substituted by machines or effects. You know, it's not about the tech. It's not about the fiber optics. Our acceptance of him should be active. We should not reconcile ourselves to, her, to his incapabilities but start from his abilities. That reads like something that you would hear now, you know, from people campaigning on behalf of people with learning disabilities. There's a a gorgeous one. They said, when a person still has a spark of independence, we ought to respect it and cherish it. And that one, you think about what that still means in that context. That means that when you have a person who's been institutionalized, who's been brutalized by that, regime for so long and they still have a spark that spark of independence sounds nice when you, that will be defiant behavior you know yeah. and we meet defiant behavior in our settings and they say we ought to respect it and cherish it that's not how we're meeting defi- we're not respecting and cherishing defiant behavior and i think it's an interesting challenge these are you know there's, there's loads of my favorite because I could read you these all day. <laughs> Today is a matter of being equal in humanity. There are no levels. It's just gorgeous. You know, wow. that stuff is the magic of sensory rooms, not the, not the tech equipment. And if you look, you look historically, we, we can look back with all our knowledge and information on what happened before and go, that was wrong. They were terrible people, those people in the past. They were dreadful. <laughs> we're fine. But- we're perfect. But when you actually sit there and look at it and go, actually, the people probably working in those institutions were the ones that actually wanted to help yeah, and try to make it absolutely. better and cure them or fix them or help mm-hmm. them or comfort them. But they were what trying to make a difference. And think? You know, yeah. people in 50 years who go, oh, God, they used to do that. What, what, what is it we're doing now that they'll think that about? That's the thing. It's always every, every year it's – you, we are doing things to the best of our knowledge now. As people, you generally do the best with information you have at the time. Yeah. As a primary school child, you behave with all the information you have at that time. Yeah. I look back on things I wrote two years ago and think, oh, God, did I say that? Oh, no. <laughs> but it is. You've got to understand that at that time, yeah, I can look back now and go, oh, I was so under wrong but at that time everything you wrote everything you'd learned and read led you to writing that and we were always going to improve and 
I think part of reflecting on your own practice and going, God, I've come a long way or I've changed is, is, is I think is part of it. But yeah, going, getting back to the sensory room, mm. there's lots of things I take away from it. So I could literally look at it as a sensory room as like a, a toy shop where you're going in and you can almost like you're getting your children to choose their favorite toy. Oh, so he likes the visual stimulus, right? Let's use that. Take that back to the classroom. How can we do that in the classroom? Cause that's, and I, I kind of look at it, especially on that relaxing side of what is it they're interacting with? What's the pain? Right, cool. How can we kind of bring that? So we don't have it, as you said, of 10 minutes a day to bring them back down again. Can we not have something like this all the time? It's going to keep them comfortable and we won't spiking up and down. If, and we're, in, and, yeah, if we're using them in an educational context, that's stuff that other researchers found is that quite often what we do in the rooms isn't carrying outside of the rooms. You know, and if you're creating a space where somebody can be able and can achieve stuff, you definitely want to be thinking about how you take that out of the room as well, unless you're planning on just keeping them in a sensory yeah. room forever. But I think if we think of, when I talk to Dr. Susan and I, we talk about things, and, and again, you probably go wrong, but multi-sensory, so these sensory rooms, I think of one or two children in at a time. Yeah. When I think of them, it is a, an adult and a child or a child or whatever. Actually, we, you can do things with groups of children in your classroom. If you can get that classroom dark and you could be watching something, and especially if you can get smell in there somehow <laughs> or things like that, and you literally, you can literally almost give a child a box and they go, right, fill this, or right, now fill that and watch. You can get those senses going in your classroom. But part of it is, yeah, making it dark and trying to get rid of the, some of the noises and so you can focus on the senses you are using. Yeah, darkness. I love darkness. I, I like it's comforting. It's it's less draining. Yeah, I personally feel going into a hospital which is white and bright, and because you've got so many hard surfaces, mm-hmm. everything echoes. Yeah, the visual stuff is is a really big thing in in schools because quite often classroom environments are very cluttered visually. And it's especially significant to autistic students because the visual processing is different for autistic people to neurotypical people. And your your visual processing is in your it's it it's a, accounts for a third of your cerebral cortex. So it's a massive uh, like amount of brain effort that goes into visual processing, and it is bigger for autistic people because I, I, I've been explaining it like old-fashioned televisions. Remember when our televisions were really, we're old enough to remember when televisions were really fat, cathode ray tube, and you would see a little sort of light flickering across the screen horizontally, like like as if the screen is being read by text and it's going down the page. And what that was, was the TV would scan across all the pixels in order to see if they needed updating. So if there's been movement, you update the pixel to adjust for that movement. And if there's not, then they just stays the same color but it would scan every pixel every time. And it would, you know, if you'd got a better telly, it would scan quicker. Whereas the modern tellies know what color all the pixels are and they know which ones are moving and they just update the moving ones. They don't have to look at all the other pixels. They just go, this is the bit of the screen that is moving. That bit is still the background and it's fine. So it's a much more efficient process. And that's a really good analogy for the difference between neurotypical and autistic sight. Neurotypical sight just updates the moving bit. And you you get these wonderful, every so often you'll see a magician do it or something, where they put people into a room that they know really well, and they'll be there to meet a friend or something. So they walk into that space, 
they don't look around because they know what their living room looks like. They just begin chatting to the person who is the visual focus to their friend. And then they ask them afterwards, did you see the big gorilla? And they go, what big gorilla? They're like, there was a big gorilla in the room. There wasn't a big gorilla. I would definitely have seen it if there was a big. And then they show them the video footage and there's a giant cardboard gorilla, you know, against the back wall. And because yeah. they've gone in and just used the, the background template that they have, they haven't actually seen what's in the room. You can never pull that trick on an autistic person because they look at every bit every time. And so whilst you might be in your classroom and able to, you know, tune out from all of the bits of paper on the wall that tell you whose turn it is to do break duty and where the fire exits are and all of that, an autistic person has to look at everything every time. And so the, the, the experience of being in darkness, yeah, really, really relaxing, much, much more brain capacity left over for other stuff. That visual stuff is fascinating because video compression works exactly the same way. Only update a pixel if it needs updating uh, yeah. and don't write it. So when you compress a video, it's going, well, nothing's changing there. So we don't need to write it. Mm. And you'll see it get cropped. The colors go funny and stuff. But also that whole thing of when you go into a school for the first time, you see the school. Yeah. And you go, oh, okay. It's really impressive. Well, you, you see everything. And especially if it's a school you work, you're, you're going to work in, you'll see it and go, oh, cool. We should change that. Yeah. A bit. Basically, yeah. If you kind of don't deal with that the first couple of times, get used to it. you don't see it after that and you get used to it. And that's not saying you just get used to it. It's like, you know, you just don't see it. You kind of, it says fascinating. But so, yes, the sensory rooms, I generally think of dark and calming. But using it for learning, again, if you get into the very more complex one-on-one type situations, probably, but yeah, the whole idea of having one room for that, when you can take the thoughts and the processes you're using it for and apply it elsewhere and have every single classroom as a sensory room yeah. make so much, much more sense. But it always has to come with what is the purpose, what is the aim, and things like that. One of the, one of the sensory companies I know is Spacecraft. Yeah. And they, they go to the shows and you see their bubble tubes and stuff and their seats and their projectors on the floor and all these things. And it's really cool. One of the things, I sat in one of their weighted chairs. Oh, wow, yeah. And this was fascinating. So I was at the Bet Show, and the Bet Show is in London at Excel with 20,000, 30,000 people over four or five days. It's huge. And the noise <laughs> and the visual, it just drains you. Just walking through there, it's like walking through a busy market. It's just heaving, and it's huge, and it takes five minutes to walk from one end to the other. And I said, I'll sit in this chair, and I sat in this chair, and it was like a thick texture with beans in and I sat in it and then she put these two wings over me and I was like what and I started chatting to the lady I was chatting to her and I didn't notice it immediately and then after a couple minutes I sort of went oh my gosh I am so relaxed it's like I was sitting in a beanbag in my living Mm. room relaxed yet I'm in a really noisy busy environment and five minutes ago, I was quite, I wouldn't say anxious, but I was aware and I would say overloaded. Yeah, heightened. And heightened. And this just brought me, and that was fascinating. I looked at the price of that chair and it was a little bit much for personal use. <laughs> I've got um, a Facebook photo album about how to make weighted blankets by yourself. It's very simple. And it was just fascinating. So again, I've not seen the whole how people use weighted blankets and things like that. I see it lots for sleeping. But again, for me, a sensory room is about relaxing. You're very much because, in the sleeping philosophy, Dale. Oh, it is because 
you've got to be in the right place to learn. Yeah, you want to feel safe at a sensory level in order to be able to learn and you ought to be able to feel safe at a sensory level in your classroom because all our spaces are multi-sensory space. I feel like we've done a lot of philosophy talking. I, we my, have, it's my been fascinating. Did a load of, it pulled up a load of practical stuff too. So just like the design was really critical, the tech stuff and whether people were happy with tech was good. That things got broken was a massive barrier and underhand practices and how things were sold and timetabling. There was some really just like practical, like if you've got a sensory room, you have, and sometimes when I talk about this, people think I don't like sensory rooms. They're lovely. Like, of course, if I had all the money in the world, I would definitely have a sensory room. They've got enormous potential. And if you have one already, if you've already got one of these things, excellent. Try not to, they've got this potential and it's so easy to squash it with like basic things like timetabling. The way you timetable a sensory room, the way the way ours used to be timetabled was we would put a note up on the door that had all the hour slots and you would sign up. You know, whoever got there first got the best slot. And that was how we timetabled it. It was really quick. It was really simple. It should not be really quick and simple to timetable a sensory room. It should be, you know, several staff meetings of arguing to get that timetabling in the best way for your students and if you have got a student who's going to need that space as a get out you can't timetable that so you need to have a system for how because it's no good if that student who needs to get out goes down to the room and finds it full of people because then you've just made that situation worse you've made their safe space appear not safe you've interrupted the session that was going on in there you know and if you're regularly having somebody who needs to the, the brokenness of the equipment was associated with people using sensory rooms as safe spaces for children who were in extreme distress because often sensory rooms are padded. You know, and if you are using your sensory room as a padded cell, which is what like the old institutions used to have padded cells in them. And we used to, once people got to a certain level of behavior, we used to pop them into the padded cell. If you're doing that with your sensory room, but it looks prettier, you know, it looks nicer in the brochures because it's nice and colourful. It's a really like honest conversation you need to have, isn't it? With Because if that is what it's for, it definitely doesn't need to be brightly coloured because that's not going to help that heightened person. But also it's not a safe space because things like the, the mounts for the projectors are metal, the acetate panels that things are made out of can be broken. They're not designed to be those safe spaces used like once or twice in an emergency you know just so and so's really lost it and this is the best of a bad job fine but if it's happening regularly then it's it's about a bigger conversation about how that shouldn't be happening and then yeah things like that led to the broken equipment loads of people had got amazing rooms with broken equipment and then that led into the practices of the companies that sell the rooms and there was some very interesting, I'm quite, I don't know, I get called naive. I, I don't think I'm naive. I do have a very positive opinion of people. So I don't generally go about expecting people to be doing, there was some really dastardly practice. There was one company that when they installed a piece of equipment, changed all the mechanisms in they, they they would say to the schools, oh, we'll update your, like your switches so that they can interact with this piece of equipment, with our piece of equipment. And what that did was it invalidated the warranties on all the other bits of equipment so that when the other bits of equipment broke, they couldn't get them on their 
on their warranty. And they, they didn't tell the schools that that was what was happening. So by installing this new piece of equipment, they kind of, they ruined the maintenance of all the other equipment in the room. And the, there was companies that were selling, like, you can have this room. It's a bit like, you know, when you buy a cheap printer and then the cartridges are loads of money. It was like that. They were yeah. like, the room's a bargain. And the schools were like, great, but you have to pay us a maintenance contract. Like your caretaker will not be able to fix this room. Your local Sparky will not be able to come in. Only we are allowed to touch our products and you will pay us X amount of money. I, I met a school who were uninstalling a perfectly glorious room that was completely functional because they couldn't afford the maintenance contract. And th those things are just, they're not too dastardly because if you'd asked, if you'd read the small print, you would find it. I did, I did uncover like, even more does like the murky world of, of and and lots and lots of lovely companies doing wonderful things i am not naming any names <laughs> i'm not it's, it is like with everything in your school you've got to have you've got to start with a purpose yeah who you've got why, to start with a need what where you then got to sort of work out what is so we get all these latest toys how many staff can use it two let's not do it then how many staff can use this? Everyone. Well, let's do that then. However flashy that first one is, if, if people can't use it. And, and what there's... it means by using as well, because when I asked people about training, everybody had been trained in how to operate the rooms. So everybody had had training in how to switch it all on and off and how to create the effects. In, in my school, we used to get trained on that once a year. Nobody, absolutely nobody had had training on how to use it. Just you got training on the tech. But not on the on the actual thing that is the magic. Yes, it's like someone showing you this is a mouse and this is a keyboard. Marvelous, yeah. right? Go. go do something. What? Yeah, it's kind of right. So actually, how do I create different senses? How do I? Yeah, there's lots of actually. There's loads of stuff around that you can do. And if you're not kind of doing it, it's kind of you're spending a lot of money in a room and then yeah, doing that nothing with it. That mouse and keyboard example is really good. Like, imagine if if your local council office installed a brand new suite of computers they bought this amazing new tech but they didn't train any of their staff on how to use them what would that tell you about the computers are they just there for show because they want to go look at our amazing computers does does the management not really care about the outcome of using those computers they just want they want the computers to be there and they want them to be seen to be used and it, you know it's a, it's a good parallel isn't it if you've got a sensory room you should make sure that well, I'm biased, aren't I? Because I'm a trainer. So I always think that the knowledge and the understanding is more important than the equipment. But, but it's, if you, <laughs> but if you think it. of the, the interactive whiteboard generation of when that yeah. came out, we all went to interactive whiteboards and you had all these staff going, interactive whiteboards, what do you use it for? I stick a Word document up there. <laughs> we watch some videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. What else? That's it? No. What about all the interactive stuff? I, I, they showed me, but I don't really understand it, so I don't do it. Yeah. yeah. So all these interactive whiteboards, in reality, should just be replaced with whiteboards and projectors at a quarter of the cost. Yeah, I like the old overhead projectors, and you could do little tricks on them. But if if you've got the knowledge and understanding, then you can get effective practice out of a £1.2 million century room, and you can also get effective practice out of a blanket and a torch, you know. The yes. difference isn't the equipment. The equipment's nice and there are some lovely shiny things and amazing infinity swings and the, the tech is fantastic. And if you have a budget for it, brilliant, buy it. But it won't do anything 
the the value is in the knowledge and understanding. And the difficult thing for schools is that when they buy the tech, they can point to it. They go, there's our money. It's that there. And when you spend that money on training staff, you know, it can go off sick. It can get a new job. It, it, it can, people can wander away with their money, with your money in their heads. So it's, it's a bolder thing to do, but it's much more valuable for the people. So basically what we're doing is just, we're kind of comparing a sensory room to a kitchen. You might go out and buy the brand new kitchen, the only one with the ovens yeah. where the oven door oh, slides down. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And all this lot. What do you do? I, I, I use the phone for the takeaway and I put my lasagna in the microwave. Yeah, you need to know. And that's it. Yeah. So it is, you need to know, and you might even have cupboard full. You look at all these lovely organized pots with all my sugars and rices in and flowers. And okay, so what, what do you cook? Yeah, pizza. And it, I know it is, it's hard. And I know teachers have all this workload, but the potential is there. It's, an, it's a nice, it's an empowering thing as well because you don't have to wait for the money and the budget. You can do stuff with nothing. I have a photo album associated with the book that I put on my Facebook page that is alternative multi-sensory rooms. And I've just been collecting photos of multi-sensory rooms that people have made themselves. And there's, some, there's one school that had made a multi-sensory room out of milk bottles, those two litre What's yep. it? Frosted plastic ones. milk bottles. Yeah, they built like a huge igloo out of them and they've made a multi-sensory room just out of milk bottles. So you can do it with next to nothing. The per- people who did that understood the purpose, the point they started of from what the they children. wanted to achieve. Yeah. And if you start there, you'll win. If you're going, well, I've got some money and I've not got a sensory room, I should get one. We definitely need one that's better than the school next door. But in reality, before you do that, Go and play in all the other school's sensory rooms you can. Go, go, go. That's a really nice. Can I come and have a look? Show me your show off your, your sensory room to yeah. me. Then, then actually, what is it they're talking about? How are they talking about or it? Or if you're getting it from a company, listen to the questions that they ask you. Because if their question is, how much money have you got? Their, their, their thought is, how much of this stuff can I sell them? Which is a sensible question to ask if you're trying to sell people stuff. But if their question is, who is this for? What do you want to do with this? If they're asking, I know a company that will get really cross with you if you can't answer those questions. Their first question that they ask when you phone them for a sensory room is who are you using it for? And what, what, what are their sensory needs? What are their sensory capabilities? If you're, if you're speaking to a company and those are the questions that they're asking, you're like, ding, ding, ding. This is going to be a good way of spending more money. If they're like, how much have you got? I've got this, this, and this. That's the thing is, schools are tight for money. Yeah, schools don't, they're not rolling no, in it. No, very much not. If I turned around to you, I said, look, I've got this magic bean. I have all the evidence that this magic bean works. Yeah. And this is how easy it is, but it's going to cost you 10 grand. Really expensive magic bean. If you've everything evidence points this magic bean working, you will raise as a school 10 grand to buy that magic bean. Yeah. But Busy. that's often not what happens. And But I, I've been in situations where I've shown a school our software and it's going to make the biggest difference. I've said the price and it's a really big school and really everything. It's like, oh, that's a big five for you. They're gone. But we need it. And then they, they, they find a way to afford it. But there are other times where I've, yeah, I've, I've been on the thing, I've been on the reverse end as well. What's your budget? And I was like, well, so what's it got to do with anything? 
or I've, I, and what I always hate is when when a company when a company says to you, you didn't go with us uh, six months ago. I was like, oh, you're too expensive. Oh, you should have said we could have reduced the price. Mm. I get very angry at that. I get very angry. If you could have reduced the price, why didn't you give me that price in the first place? Yeah, that's a whole other yeah issue that I get angry about. It's about asking the right questions. The questions are not what equipment do I need or what activities should I do there or how should I design this? The questions are who and why. And... All the first questions from them should be finding out about yeah. you. I, I actually had a, I had a meeting before today. It was yesterday, actually. I had a meeting with a school when we started going through it. I said, generally, this is where B squared fits in. and said, we haven't really got the We don't really need that. I went, I don't think you need us. <laughs> I said, from what you've said, and I asked you, can you show progress to these pupils? Yeah. I said, if they're not making progress, can you identify why? She went, yes. I said, you don't need us. If you can do that already, yeah. we're not going to add anything onto it. That's what you. That's what schools need us for. They can't show progress and they can't identify why. That's why they come to B squared. So I was like, yeah, it's like you don't need us. She went, oh, okay. Sorry for wasting your time. I'm like, well, no, because you've answered your question that you don't need B squared. <laughs> You've always been going to I need B squared, but we've answered that question. You're not claiming to be for everybody. No. So one of the main sources of information about sensory rooms that people get when they're looking for sensory rooms, when they're thinking, what do I need? The, way, the place they get their information from is advertising. And the original advertising was another thing I did when I wrote the book as I tracked the advertising as well as the research about the rooms through since their um, inauguration since their inception that's the one and initially when you get adverts of sensories people are going like we can build you a dark space with some lights on it and people with learning disabilities might like it and then this is a piece of advertising copy from 2011 and this is this is a quote this is literally what it says and they they literally say there is literally no end to the possibilities of sensory stimulation which can be brought to people with special needs young and old so not just the children all of them and that means there's no end, no end to the benefits from emphasis, Joe's own, for mental, emotional, cognitive challenges, as well as degenerative conditions such as dementia or Alzheimer's disease in old age and neurological diseases. Like literally, we are the cure-all for all things. And they can say that in adverts because there isn't the research to challenge them. There isn't the research that can turn around and go, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so they, you get this incredibly persuasive advertising copy but it is advertising i always love and makeup is the worst for this i probably mentioned this before on the podcast and someone's going oh, yes you've mentioned this is when you ever see these this new mascara boosts your eyelashes by blah 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 yes 97 percent of women agreed i go what? how many did they ask oh you surveyed yeah. seven and you literally i'm talking generally whenever you see one of these adverts where they have a claim dishwasher salt your fairy liquid, any of it. Look at the stats at the bottom. You could do a stand-up Generally, sensory room research. They, it doesn't get into double. It's in double figures. Generally, occasionally it gets triple, but generally it's like we surveyed a hundred people in this area at this time. I'm like, so you literally, you're even saying that you fine-tuned your selection <laughs> of people. Yeah. We 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 asked we asked 150 people outside of secondary school at 3 p.m. while offering the McDonald's. If they like McDonald's. Yeah, I do, yeah. I've quite fancy It's like you read it and you just go. The, the sensory room research quite often doesn't have a control group. So they go in and they offer 
people with learning disabilities in a setting the chance to go to a sensory room for an hour and and then the chance to not go to a sensory room for an hour and they find well what a surprise the ones that got to go to it you know the ones that got to do an activity for an hour did better than the ones that just sat there if you were doing that research properly or you know to a better level you'd have done you know one group go to a sensory room one group go and you know do you do something to find out was it just the doing stuff that made the difference or was it the biggest offensive equipment that they claim the ability to control stimulation within a sensory room enables users to self-regulate what you're saying is that people who have difficulties with with sensory processing with intake or pickup of sensory processing are, are somehow going to be able to fix those difficulties by being able you know, it's like saying an alcoholic would improve their self-regulation in a liquor store like where this is plentifully available to them research has shown that multi-sensory rooms and par- give participants and caregivers the opportunity to, to improve their communication you're like but but is it being in the room or was it just spending time with each other that gives you the chance to improve your and again there's never the comparison study they said there was a there was a brilliant study i read that concluded that multi-sensory rooms were a non-threatening space that improves self-esteem and reduces tension. But they wrote, in that was the conclusion of the study, you think, great, yay. They wrote in the description of what they'd done, they'd gone, they were doing it in a provision for adults with learning disabilities. Several of the adults, when first taken to the sensory room, had become distressed. So they were removed from the study. And then as they went on, if anybody got, you know, stressed or had their, they were just removed from the study. So they only kept and then they found out that it re- reduces tension and improves self-esteem for the people who, you know, for whom it reduces tension and improves self-esteem. And and the, the, the one that is something that I'm trying to answer in my research currently and have answered a few times with the sensory projects that I run is this idea that the voice of the person standing next to you is your voice. Because what you'll have is adults in a day service, they install a sensory room so they conduct a piece of research to see if their money has been well spent. And they are normally sat in the, you know, in the living room, 10 adults with one member of staff whose job it is to make sure that everybody's been to the toilet, that everybody's got their medications, that the thing has been mopped up, that, you know, one member of staff who's run off her feet. And then during the phase of the research, they get some, they get that member of staff to take Bob down to the sensory room. And Julie, who's normally run off her feet in the day room, goes down to the sensory room with Bob and gets to sit in the dark and look at a bubble tube. And she reports that Bob was very relaxed by being in the sensory room. <laughs> You're like, was he? Or was Bob just a bit confused about why everything had gone dark? And you you hear about people falling asleep in sensory room. I've I've had loads of schools tell me that they found staff asleep because because they are very calming faces. That's the thing. It's not it's not so simple as just that they're rubbish and should be thrown away. They're brilliant their potential is just wasted because of the understanding around them. It should be literally, yeah. Where's jo- it's, it's lunchtime, where's Joanna? In the sensory room, relaxing. Yeah. That should be kind of made normal. Yeah, I'm just having a little light down. <laughs> but I, I'm going to wrap yes, the podcast we should up. stop talking. Because this is not the podcast I thought I'd be having oh, with you. Oh, did you think I you were going to get a top I 10 s- of the best bits? Of, I'm sorry. You need, a, you, need, yes. you need it dark. Get a bubble tube. They're lovely. Have an infinity swing. Get a bubble tube. Some fiber optic. But I thought you go, this is what they're for. It's quite a simple thing, but none Ooh. of you are missing it. But no, it's what it's for is it's up to you what it's yeah. for. Or it's my favorite school. So what are you doing? It feels simple. You're probably doing it wrong. Well, it's a, my favorite answer in school is 
it depends. Yeah. Uh, quite a short way, we've always done it this way. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or I inherited it, so I kept doing it the same. They're my top three answers in a school. But it is, is I was expecting you to go, this is what you do, this is what it's for, these are the benefits. It's quite simple, really. I read a book on it. Ta-da! I did write a book on it. But what you basically said, <laughs> I know you write a book, and that's what I thought we'd get all the answers you got to. But obviously, you didn't get to many answers. Read it, go, it's, it was really brilliant, but it was frustrating. And you think, yeah, because you read it wanting the answers, and I just gave you loads of questions. But if you ask the questions, you get the answers for yourself, and then they're different every yes. time. If I just give you schools, answers, yes, it's it's the top if we all clock. want the answer. Yeah, sorry, you want an answer. It's easier. I only have but, questions, but no. I, so that wasn't the podcast I was expecting to record. I've really enjoyed it. I've, I literally enjoyed. I wasn't expecting a history going back to 1913s and the idiots. <laughs> bit. I, I literally started going. I might just do a history, a podcast on history of SEO oh, with you. Because that's cool. that was all fascinating. It was. It's depressing, but it is. Again, you've got to appreciate where we to appreciate where yeah. we are. And I generally hate history, but to appreciate where we are, you kind of look at where we've come from. And my member, my mum, she went for a job in a school with Sybil Elgar many years ago and part of the reason my mum got the job at with Sybil Elgar at a school for autistic people children was because she'd met one (laughs) (laughs) no one else who had interviewed had met an autistic child there you go so you know you, you literally and you sit there and for me in my modern world growing up and seeing everything quite rose tinted and quite happy for SEN in comparison to what you hear, it'll be interesting to find out that journey. But yeah, it's a fascinating find out the journey. Finding to Yan and Ad. Yeah, the guys, they wrote Snoozlin, Another World. I, I am actually going to go read that because it, it does sound fascinating. And the whole thing is, and again, a lot of it is with me, it's when I hear about that, what I heard is they realized, I love this. This is so nice. I want to share yeah, it. It was the connection. That was the part. That was the bit. That's to me a drive of a century room. It's got to come from there. So going back all the way to that and looking at all the way all the way through was fascinating. If people are looking for century room books. I mean, obviously they should read mine and Yadnan's, but the the there's a few others that I'd recommend. Hurstwood and Gray wrote their book, which is a very practical. You know, like how you set up the rooms, not having cables hanging and and a really good overview of the sort of sensory room practice that we'd recognize. And then Paul Pagliano has some amazingly detailed work on using sensory rooms with people with complex disabilities. And Susan Fowler has a book of activities, which is often something that I'm asked for. You send me those. I will send you those links. Because I literally written Snoot and I went, I've forgot the other one. Yes, if you could, that'd be great. And I'll be putting those in the show notes for everyone else. And I personally am going to read that one from Yen and Ad because it does sound fascinating. And I always like someone who's realized that. And again, so yeah, I love the history. I loved the research. Again, that was fascinating. <laughs> Not what I wanted to hear. So, but again, sometimes it's having something impressive, as you said, to counteract mm. the how the school looks because it has to be very medical. And I sit there and go, okay, does it have to look very medical? Sometimes there's a whole reason. Sometimes you can sit there and go, look, it has to be wiped clean. It has to be this, has to be this. Cool. Fair enough. But I, it's um, public image. You know, you can, you can deal with public image in different ways. It can still look the same, but people can be more understanding of why it looks that way. I was lucky enough to go to some schools in Dubai. Mm. And 
that's a very different type of school, very different stuff going on. The floors are amazing. They literally have, you, you, when you walk around the school, the floor isn't just a color. It's you're walking through zones oh. and it's all, and it's, it's, they spent money, but you're like going, yeah, but you've now transformed it from a corridor to a journey. <laughs> It was it was so much fun. I'm an adult, let alone a kid. And that's the thing. So, I, yeah, it's great looking at different experiences. So, yeah, so lots of things. For me, a, a sensory room is relaxing. But if someone's going there to chill out and then they go back and there's, there's something wrong in that cycle. Mm-hmm. And also, if you're seeing things that are working in that thing, why not bring it out of there into the classroom yeah. more? That makes a lot of sense to me. And understanding multi-sensory is a lot of fun for everyone yep. as well. So yeah, we'll be sharing, I'll be sharing the links you've given me. I'll be sharing your contact details and links to your book, multi, multi, multiple multi-sensory rooms, myth busting the magic yep. brutal edge. I'll be sharing all of those and you'll find them at wherever you listen to the podcast. You'll find the show notes there or you'll find them on our website. And as I always say, and I do mean it, thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You'll find the links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. So you'll go there. There'll be a button for Spotify and, and iTunes and all the rest. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at the Sendcast. And on Facebook and Instagram, we are the Sendcast. Please tell your, your group, tell everyone you follow you about the Sendcast. The more we can share Joanna's information on multi-sensory rooms, the better they'll get. Big, big claims. <laughs> The claim, yes, I'll stick it in my advertising. <laughs> and yeah, share it because the more more people we can get to listen to, and I'm going I'm to call all my people I talk to as experts. When someone's doing PhD, they they kind of got to count themselves as an expert, even if they don't think they are. But I work with lots of I'm people who are very passionate. <laughs> no, you, you are doing a PhD, so you kind of got. A, I've got a, a bit above me. I've got A levels. But it is, I, I'm so fortunate. I talk to really passionate people and those passionate people have become amazing in their areas. And it is that passion and understanding and that drive, which so many people have. And it is, is a great way to share that knowledge. We don't have knowledge for everything. Joanna obviously has lots of time to read lots of things because she's a fountain of knowledge and just constantly just, just gives information. Long pain journeys. But you also tweak a lot and it's lots of little quotes from things, I, don't when you? When I read the research, my, because it's just reading a research paper, it, it's difficult to get yourself involved in it. So when I read the research papers, my discipline is to try and create tweets out of them. And then I keep the tweets somewhere. And my Twitter feed just sings them out. So Yeah, I just going, all she ever does is post these things. And it's quite weird. And you sit there <laughs> going, but they're, they're weird, but they're interesting. If you know what I mean, it is. It's like they're going, literally, wow, is she's, she's oh yeah, but yeah, no, it is. I, I'm very fortunate that I get to talk to you lot, my amazing guests, and learn so much. And again, another thing I'd say about Century Room, going back to Century Room, not ending the podcast, is a time, focused time. Yeah. And what I mean by focused time is I spend my podcasts and I get to sit there and listen and I think and talk and ask my questions about things. And if you're listening to this, you're kind of, you're doing something else. You might be literally walking a dog or even picking up dog poo right now or painting or driving in the car, moaning at the person in front. But you kind of gone, I'm going to listen to this podcast and you've put time to it. 
and sometimes that's what a sensory room is. You, you've got lots of stuff going on, but when I'm in that, when in that sensory room, it's the here and the now. It's a bit mindfulnessy, but it is the here and the now, what's going on in that room, not what's going on in a bit, what's not going on in later. It's something about there's a time bit in that room as well, which is really good. Does that make yep. sense? Yep. Cool. I thought I was just babbling and you are just looking at me going, no, but yeah. So, and before I, before we go, please, please do check out the Training for Education website. This is where we have the virtual STEND conference and you'll find a number of my guests on the Sendcast, our speakers at our conferences. Joe's uh, recorded one for our May 2022 conference. And the virtual send conference is really good because it is a conference which comes to you across the internet. We run it live. You can join in. You can ask our guests Q&As. We do a Q&A session. If you can't make it on the day, you can still access everything because we record it all and you can access it forever. So it's really valuable training you can access, but it means everyone in your school can access the training. So it's really, really valuable. And you can get more information about the Virtual Send conferences and the Training for Education courses by going to the Training for Education website, which is www.trainingforeducation.com. And as an exclusive gift to our listeners, as always, you can get 10% discount on the Virtual Send conferences, future or past, by using the code SENDCAST10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the SENDCAST. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.